0: For November 10th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 332. My watch is saying, that's the best thing about high school girls. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From San Francisco, uh, where I have been visiting and am being hosted right now, most graciously, in the Video Games Hot Dog recording studio and uh, with um, our friends from the Video Games Hot Dog podcast uh, and also our friends... Uh, By proxy, the Idle Thumbs podcast, this is also their studio, so thank you to both of those fine podcasts, which you should check out. Uh, In this location, in this beautiful studio, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, uh, and with special guest Zach Johnson beside me. Thank you very much for joining the podcast today, sir. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, it's very, very uh, glad to have you to talk about Interstellar, and very glad to have such swanky digs as this to be podcasting from. This puts my uh, this puts my normal uh, second bedroom in the corner of my second bedroom podcasting studio to shame, and so um, in in honor of that, I've issued the Trader Joe's box wine for a fancy French wine uh, that I've brought for us to share. Um, we're going to talk about Interstellar, as you might expect, on this Overthinking It podcast. But first, uh, there are five people on this podcast. Now, if each person were a cook, you might say... that we had too many of them. Too many cooks, too many cooks. <laughs> too, too many cooks, too many cooks. Too many cooks, too many cooks. Too
1: many okay. cooks, too many cooks. Too many
2: cooks, too many cooks. You're not going <laughs> to talk over it? that? Yeah, that was, was like explain... you're vamping. <laughs> who Sorry. wants to explain too many cooks with no idea what the hell it is we're talking about?
0: I, 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 I didn't understand that that was the music bed that I was supposed to like lay in the voice over over the top of that
3: so so the source material doesn't have anything over that i mean i guess we should have just been showing our names in (laughs) floating text while that was happening
0: um oh well let's do the names i like to do the names at the beginning of the podcast so we have matt Belinky. hey there i
4: have a a yellow glowing name hovering in front of my skype at this point p fenzel
1: believe it i became the hokage this week but nobody cares so we're not going to talk about it
2: (laughs) and mark lee Oh, you were interrupting me doing something in an awkward fashion. And yet I turned to the camera with a smile on my face <laughs> with my name underneath. So yep. what, we're,
0: what we're talking about is the Too Many Cooks video, which was in the infomercial slot on Adult Swim. Recently, and literally blew up the internet because it's brilliant. Um, It's what it is. Is uh, and you know, jump in and interrupt if I'm not getting this right. It's a parody of sort of 1980s classic sitcom style uh, sitcom credit sequences, sitcom openings, and uh, it's um, you you know with uh, with the family sitcom, but it sort of morphs and becomes dark. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But uh, uh, all you need to know for the purpose of this question of the week is that it involves stereotypes from 1980s sitcoms like the slightly perverted nosy neighbor looking in on the window of the pretty girl which is actually a much creepier thing uh, in our current social climate than, than it seemed to have been at the time. Um, or the you know put upon father, the henpecked uh, paterfamilias, or the uh, the indulgent mother, or the you know uh, slutty teenage girl, or the other slutty teenage girl. Or the coat. <laughs> so we're uh, we're asking panel this week um, if you were. A, uh, an 80s sitcom cliché a la all the 80s sitcom clichés in Too Many Cooks uh, in, in the credit sequence who would you be and, and what would the camera catch you doing before you did a big take to the camera and uh, flash those pearly whites in a giant toothy smile um, first in the alphabet drink a lovely Chateau Neuf de Pop because it's not Peter Fenzel it's Matt Belinke um
4: here's the deal the the the, one of the genres that i felt was was missing uh from the show is sort of a live action uh children's show there is the there's a cartoon in it but when i'm i'm thinking about like you know like it's almost like a sesame street type thing uh because especially because when when the uh the uh, the the the, uh, too many cooks takes a creepy turn i think the children's shows and creepiness can actually be like a really nice uh wine pairing uh, some of us on the podcast remember uh, MTV Two's Great Wonder Shows in, which was sort of like a, a very adult version of a children's show, and was very dark. And I feel like a spiritual uh, uh, predecessor to Too Many Cooks. Um, and I'm thinking of one show in particular, which is uh, Picture Pages, uh, starring Bill Cosby. Uh, I believe that before before my day, it was originally Captain Kangaroo, and Bill Cosby took it over. Anybody remember Picture Pages? By the way, oh, hey, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, it was. I, I think uh, w- what I remember it from it was it was a segment during Pinwheel on Nickelodeon, but I think it 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 bounced around to various other places. Um, and what I what I think is uh, very appropriate to the Too Many Cooks verse is the idea that like uh, there, there's a lot of uh, blurring of boundaries. There's a lot of uh, permeability in the universe. The, the Too Many Cooks verse. Um, and what I remember most distinctly about picture pages, which is, I find it hard to believe that anyone was stupid enough to make this suggestion, but this is this is how I remember it from, like, you know, when I was like four, is that they actually invited you to like put plastic wrap on your TV and then draw on your TV, literally to to draw on top of the image that you saw. On the TV and add your own drawing to it. I mean, Does using else, using like, what?
0: Using like sharpies or using I don't know what. I,
4: think, I seem to recall that there was some sort of a picture pages branded the 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 the, the writing implement that Bill Cosby used was of course Ichabod marker, which I'm assuming that like up until like right before they were about to shoot, it was supposed to be Ichabod Cran. This is just this is just the only logical thing that makes sense. It was supposed to be Igabod Crayon, and then somebody's like, but it's not a crayon, so we're gonna call it Igabon Marker. And somebody I... was like, but 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 too late.
0: Except Matt, say the word C-R-A-Y-O-N.
4: Um oh see now oh, all right.
0: Crayon. Yeah. I that's funny. Yeah. I say crayon. Yeah.
4: Do you actually do the two syllables. Yeah,
0: I do. I also say drawer. No, like a not... delicious crayon berry
3: sauce, like you might have at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Exactly, exactly like that. I remember picture pages, uh, picture pages, picture pages, uh, Matt Speaks English, take two. I remember picture pages, well, I remember watching it on PBS when I wish I had been watching Night Court as a small child because everything I learned about society, I learned from Night Court and not from Bill Cosby or Mr. Rogers. you um, well, missed an opportunity not renaming it Marker Post.
3: <laughs> I don't follow Oh, Marky, Marky oh, Post uh, from, uh, from, yeah, 80s, exactly. from 80s sitcom Night Court. Sorry. It's relevant. I,
0: God, that's... That, <laughs> as, as th- I'm ashamed. She never
4: got to see it. <laughs> Somebody get this man a DVD of Night Court for Christmas. <laughs> oh,
0: man. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I know what I'm going to put on the overthinking at Holiday Gift, guys. <laughs>
1: uh, Night Court established as the ultimate normcore sitcom, right? In our previous episode where we discussed Normcore. was it? I mean, I, to, yeah. I
0: I thought that Nightcore was maybe too uh, too prostitution focused really to be a Normcore sitcom.
3: <laughs> I would have thought if anything established Normcore it would be Cheers, but I guess maybe that was Cliffcore
1: instead. <laughs> Wait, who in Nightcore was a prostitute? Everyone, all the Everyone. All, <laughs> <John Larkin.
0: laughs> Well, they were lawyers, you know so, The aforementioned Well, they worked for the state I mean, he was a uh, You know, DA and a, and a Public defender um, But no, the, the people who were caught I mean, who gets, I, I mean, do you remember The the theme song Tonight Court Which I wrote lyrics to that nobody knows
1: Yeah, many cooks. <laughs> too many cooks Too many, <laughs> no, the, 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 too many cooks what? What's up? <laughs>
0: uh, but, but no, I wrote I wrote lyrics that nobody knows to the theme song from from Night Court. Remember the one that goes ba ba da ba da ba ba da bum bum do 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 Yeah, that's the one. It's uh, right, and then do 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 do. So I wrote lyrics to it. That's if you get arrested after five o'clock. Do 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 do. Uh, and it's about how it's court at night. It's court at night. It's court at night it's called night court called night court um yeah so that who gets arrested at night it's it was all these solicitation uh uh solicitation charges and and uh you know
3: brent spiner for hillbillying after
0: curfew (laughs) for being a hillbilly um but the uh you know yeah yeah they were all and it was all john lurkett was was always hitting on the prostitutes um the, and i i'm i'm terrified to think what part of my worldview uh this my early exposure to this sitcom and syndication uh affected peter fenzel next in the alphabet all right now to clarify
1: too many cooks isn't just about sitcoms it's about all different kinds of television shows from the 80s my particular favorite reference in too many cooks was to falcon crest the family drama about a wine dynasty right in california and they showed that. That was the bird. You're wondering why there was a bird in the house. That's why. <laughs> but one kind of show that wasn't shown in Too Many Cooks that I think would have reflected the spirit of Too Many Cooks and also the spirit of what we're talking about today, which is the movie Interstellar. Uh, because Interstellar is, of course, about man confronting the void, right? And, and and that's one of the things that Interstellar is about. And there's another show that, that really came into its own in the 80s that I think of as just uh, two human beings, maybe one human being suspended in a void of blackness. With, like, you know, the white light of the focus of of generations uh, upon them. And I'm talking, of course, about 2020 Uh, and other sorts of, like, I'm at a desk with white light on me in total blackness. Um, Sort of pseudo-news shows, right? And they're not pseudo-news shows. They're sort of serious news shows. I mean, 60 Minutes is sometimes like that, too, right? Where there's this, like, alternate dimension where the 2020 and 60 Minutes people, like, float in and out of existence as they comment seriously on the issues of the day. So I think I would be a character in Too Many Cooks who was, like, sort of passing through the 2020 void. Right. And then and instead of giving like the smile to the camera, I would give like a serious look to the camera. But then I would be pulled away by like the tentacle of some eldritch creature that would turn out to have the head of the serial killer on it. Something like that. Because, you know, Barbara Walters, you know, sleeps, you know, for deep eons beneath Hugh Downs. Or No, that's not right.
0: No, no it's 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 Barbara Walters all the way Hugh Downs.
1: Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> john stossel joke this, that's a placeholder for later when we come up with a john stossel joke we'll go back and we'll add a john stossel joke to this part of the
0: podcast All right, don't I'll...
1: let me forget guys write an email to the podcast over you get to the comment if i forget to do this
0: uh and uh mark lee is next in the alphabet
2: okay so i don't have an exhaustive list of asian americans on television in the 1980s but i do know that pat Morita um was on happy days the 80s now uh for those who don't remember. Uh, he started in the show in the '70s as uh, Matsuo Arnold Takahashi, the owner of the diner Arnold. So he went away for a while and then came back uh, in the '80s. And so, um, and as the token minority sort of other on the Overthinking It <laughs> podcast, I feel like I got to uh, portray this role. Um, but uh, noticeably on the Too Many Cooks, um, uh, in, the, in the video Too Many Cooks, that's the role of the other is prominently played by the alien cat, which of course is a reference to Alf, right? So I guess if I can't be my own Asian American self doing you know representing the otherness in uh, in a, in a in an approachable way for a 1980s audience I guess I'm going to have to be an alien from another planet as some sort of fuzzy stuffed animal and just I to, guess uh, I'm going to be caught um, like eating something inappropriate like, like a cat or, or point a kimchi, of clarification. for clarification
1: point of clarification yes. Yes. Uh, Smurf the cat in too many cooks is not just a reference to Alf but also a reference to Snarf The Mm. little cat creature in the Thundercats—that was uh, like more like a lizard and a small animal than the other part animal, part humans that were in the show. That's a very good point. Uh, But I I, I was,
2: I was, I was very much making the connection to Alf just because, like, he was, you know, uh, you know, a a, a puppet in the real life verse, real life setting, rather than um, an animated setting, and like within as a part of the family.
1: Oh yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. He looks looks like DJ Cat, and he plays
2: the piano. And also, apparently, is a cyborg underneath his his fur.
0: Just when, yeah, when when his fur and his flesh melts off, he's a, a cyborg. Yeah. But aren't we all, in a way? We- speaking of which, uh, that's my answer. I want to be Vicky from Small Wonder. I want to be the the <laughs> the robot the robot child, like that has sort of data. Like speaking of Brent Spiner, various panels that you can open and close with, you know, uh, blinking lights and circuit boards, you know, and and resistors and things like things like this. It was a very it was a very sort of non non microchip kind of future envisioned by by vicky right it was all it was all like breadboard and like very sort of electrical engineering uh style things and and um and uh, right like and i i sort of wanted i was either as a as a child i either wanted to be a robot like vicky or a robot like inspector gadget i suppose inspector gadget is a cooler robot uh was he did, a robot or a well, cyborg he was sort did of he have so- man right. parts <laughs> did he have he well, was you a know. golem he was a
1: golem brought to life by, by faith in Jewish tradition and custom, right? He had the word of penny and
0: brain engraved on his forehead. Did Inspector Gadget have men parts? Is a question that I don't want to answer. But uh, it, it is definitely a candidate for title of the podcast. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm going to be Vicky from, Vicky from Small Wonder. Uh, and, you know, um, one of you can be Harriet. Uh, and uh, and uh, I'm a Small Wonder, pretty and bright with soft curls that all
3: <laughs> so small wonder was the robot that, like daryl from the movie daryl yes uh, the data analyzing robotic youth life form mm-hmm. was she l- issued to the family by some sort of sinister corporation no, or did the, the father the, build her the or? father
0: built her he was an inventor and okay. the father built her and the neighbors always suspected i think that that something was going on and uh uh but they it was a secret it was a big secret from from everyone else
3: That wasn't the show that uh, either Marilyn Manson or the lead singer of Smashing Pumpkins was the younger brother on, because that wasn't a show, because neither of those rumors were true. I think, what was the one with the lady from, the girl from space, the half alien who talked to her dad? You're thinking,
4: what is it, Out of of This World? Out of This World, uh, yeah. And Burt Reynolds is the dad. Oh, right, but he... in vo- they... voice only, never, never yeah, shows up. Yeah, you never Bert see Reynolds him never, yet. I, I guarantee you, Burt Reynolds has never seen an episode of the show, just reads whatever stupid copy they give him. <laughs> sure, that was like
3: the 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 least money they could spend to get Burt Reynolds' name in the credits. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, And uh, as our guest, you have pride of place at the end of the podcast. What 1980s sitcom figure are you going to be?
3: Well, I was going less sitcom and more uh, towards the sort of Max Headroom, uh, which I I believe had its short life in the 80s. But given that in the actual 80s, uh, I was but a child dorkily sitting at a computer all of the time. Uh, I would be the child dorkily sitting at the computer all of the time, but having made an artificial intelligence construct of himself that was hooked up to the home automation system, uh, which technology always seemed to exist in those sitcoms, despite it not actually existing at the time. Right. And that is the way in which nerdy hijinks would get got up to. Would
0: would ensue. Yeah. Right. The ensuing, the, the ensual, what's the, what's the noun? the ensuance. In, 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 yeah, the ensuance. <laughs> the mechanism the, <laughs> the mechanism by which ensuing would would
3: take place be able to lock the doors so whenever it was inconvenient for a door to be locked it would be locked mm-hmm. people very... would get locked into a walk-in freezer which existed in the house for some reason
0: right now that's that's a um that like that's akin to the to the current trope of no cell reception when you need it most right of like you know it is it is uh, narratively convenient for the characters to be cut off or for them to face an obstacle at this particular point the invention of the cell phone really did eliminate a lot of our avenues for drama yeah uh well, uh, so we are, we should make our own, uh, I, I nominate us to make the next, uh, the next thing. What would we call it? I mean, too many cooks is already, uh, is already taken, but, um, you know, uh, I, I, hijinks ensue perhaps, or, uh, you know, um, trapped in the closet though. I guess that's taken, but not in this context. Mm.
1: We should call it Naruto Became the Hokage this week. Huh? Does anybody know?
0: All right, Nobody? Pete, Pete, you got like 120 seconds to rant about that as long, you know, as long as you want, as long as it's 120 seconds. Go for it. I
1: def- I- I- I surrender the rest of my time to the discussion of Interstellar, because it needs it. So there you go. Uh, But Bayou, believe it. There you go. It happened. (laughs) I'll save it for the Overthinking newsletter. So if you subscribe to the Overthinking newsletter, you'll get exclusive Overthinking this week, where I'll talk about the culmination of Naruto's grand journey that took 71 volumes of manga, and like more than 700 issues, uh, to becoming the head of the Fire Ninjas. So there you go.
0: Excellent. Well, that's a, that's a good plug for the Overthinking It newsletter, which you can sign up for on the homepage of overthinkingit.com. Also, Pete, I hear that the uh, the video game podcast has been um, – uh, the uh, book club focusing on Final Fantasy VI has a guest host this week.
1: Perhaps, but nobody knows what mysterious figure will show up in the pub at Collingen. Uh, <coughs> I'm bringing my dog, Interceptor. going to be great. Yes, no, I might be guest posting. possibly. We'll see.
0: That's. It. <laughs>
1: I, I am. I wanted to be a surprise for people, but it's definitely
0: happening. Yeah. Okay. So, you know. <laughs> I hope so. It made, you made me a little nervous when you said we'll see. You know. <laughs> I didn't
1: mean to make you doubt that it was going to happen. I meant to make them doubt that it was going to happen.
0: Zach, you are, you are a video game podcaster yourself. Have you heard any of the uh, book club, the Final Fantasy yeah, VI I've, book club? I've
3: heard every episode that has been released so
0: far. Oh, that's, au- that's awfully nice of you to follow it. I, I think they've been doing a pretty good job.
3: I apologize for not, uh, for not participating, and I appreciate God, the invitation, it. but uh, it's, uh, boy, it was too busy of a month to commit to uh, playing a game of that length,
0: because,
3: mm-hmm. boy, that's a commitment.
0: Yep, absolutely, and that's what we ask from our audience at Overthinking It. Uh, but, uh, you know, it will be entertaining to you if you have played Final Fantasy VI at some point uh, in the past. Uh, you should, you can still subscribe, though. It's, uh, it will be wrapping up in the next couple weeks. We're actually taking Thanksgiving week off, I think, of that podcast, so that uh, everyone has a chance to catch up on whatever platform or emulator uh, you're playing on. You can uh, catch up. Also, uh, coming up on Overthinking It, it's November, which means that Black Friday is underway. I'm getting Black Friday marketing emails from various online stores, so uh, I figure I guess we'll jump on the bandwagon. Uh, Our annual Overthinking It gift guide uh, will be released on Black Friday, as it is every year. Uh, It contains our suggestions for what the the overthinker who has everything should get um, to have everything plus the things that we suggest. That will be released on Friday. Those are all affiliate links to Amazon, and when you click on them and buy our suggestions or anything from Amazon, we get a little kickback to uh, help support the site. It's been very successful for us in the past, and I hope it continues to be so, so uh, look for that on Black Friday. If
3: each Uh, listener bought just one DVD box set of Night Court for every person that they know... Right. The podcast yeah. could be supported for years to come.
0: Exactly. We we would be kept in uh, Trader Joe's box wine for decades, uh, nay, centuries. Um, so uh, look look forward to that. We're starting to plan out what it's going to be, which is which is a new thing for us to actually do things like this in advance. Um, we're usually flying by the seat of our pants, and, and uh, we're we're looking forward to what we're going to uh, what we're going to present to you on Black Friday. So, uh, all right, Interstellar. I am the interlocutor on this podcast because I'm the one guy who didn't see Interstellar. I was going to go today, but then it turns out that all, because it is, uh, apparently like six hours long, all the, uh, start times would have made it, impo- would have made it impossible for me to join the podcast. So, um, I'm going to, to ask stupid, naive questions and, uh, and leave it to you, to you all to answer. Let me begin, uh, by asking this, um... Do you four think that Interstellar was a good movie?
1: Silence. Should, the yeah. silence should tell you everything, Matt. The only, thing that should, the only thing that would tell you more is if it were pounding organ music instead of silence. <laughs> I did not here's leave the
3: theater the believing it was not, a bad movie. <laughs> no.
4: I, here's what I would say. Each individual scene
1: of Interstellar is great, hmm? but I don't know if it's a good movie. Each individual line of dialogue is great, but when you put more than two of them in a row, it starts
2: <laughs> getting problematic.
1: Oh, man. That was my take, was that the first hour was really slow, and the scenes with dialogue weren't that good, but that, that in general, it was... It had a lot to recommend it, in terms of suspense and excitement and action and, and spectacle, I suppose.
2: Mark? <laughs> Go ahead. But ultimately, fall short of telling a compelling story that really connects at an emotional level with the audience. Um, uh, What I'm uh, all that is to encapsulate a lot of the sort of the negative aspects of the reviews of this movie. You can go read those um, if you want to figure out about that. Um, But uh, I don't know. There's so many things to talk about in this movie. Um, We have to just go through the wormhole and, uh, and travel through to our five dimensional Tesseract and deal with all this at once and while we record this podcast
3: time. thousands of years will have passed for the listeners at home
1: no. <laughs> well then here let me ask a question of you guys as i'll sort of be assistant interlocutor since i've seen the movie is interstellar successful as a piece of speculative fiction about the future of human space travel no okay
4: no, not, not even close. <laughs> i don't think it's, it's a it's a fairy tale if any it's it's I mean, for all the, there was a lot of uh, press about how there was a you know, there's a theoretical physicist that was very involved with the script writing um, and there, yeah, I'm sure, dialogue because that would make a lot of sense. Right? No, and I, no. I'm sure I'm sure there were some back of the envelope calculations about relativity <laughs> and stuff, but like the. Like, even really simple things such as that they can receive high-definition video, but they can't send anything back, despite the fact that the earlier missions clearly sent stuff back, which is how they knew to go in the first place, Uh, that they can't send the highly intelligent robots down to the planets to scout them out. They have to go themselves. You know what I mean? Like, the, the... like a, a lot – there's a lot of suspension of disbelief to allow them to tell the very particular story they wanted to tell. It's not like a really sort of like, like rigorous portrayal of like how that might be
1: handled. Was Anne Hathaway supposed to get pregnant with ten babies at once at the end? Was that like her strategy? Was that like plan B? Was that like Anne Hathaway was personally going to get pregnant with all those embryos over the course of like well, – because it was going to be ten at first, right? And then they were going to use surrogacy, right? She was the only womb that went with them into the great beyond. So she was going to have to like be artificially like in, implanted with all of these embryos? I, I
4: felt like both Plan A and Plan B were very poorly defined. So Plan A is... Because here's the thing. They talk about in the movie a lot, like, Plan A is everybody on Earth survives. But that's not what Plan A is. Plan A is, like, a slightly larger group of people than could go on a normal spaceship, get to go on a bigger spaceship and live. And everyone else on Earth dies, Well, right? they never
3: really specify how many people are left on Earth. So it, it could be that just that town... Was right. it. I
4: mean, well, because it's not it's not a plan to save everyone on Earth. It's a plan to launch a bigger spaceship than you would be able to launch with the constraints of rocket fuel. Right. Because it's, it's a floating equation.
3: Sure. They're, okay, can, so they're trying gonna, to figure out how to cancel out gravity to the point where they could presumably. But I mean, maybe that means they could send an arbitrary number of arbitrarily large spaceships, which in the end is sort of what they did. Right. Like the We, giant, we don't
4: know what they do. We know they sent one. We know that there's probably another one out there since they mentioned there being other stations, but we don't know if like, you know, a thousand people managed to survive or like, you know, a hundred million.
0: Guys, let me ask you a question about this movie. Does it begin with the top from Inception falling over at the, uh, <laughs> as the very first shot of the movie?
1: No, but it ends with the beginning of Elysium
0: uh it turns
3: out that this was the joker's plan all along was to just watch the watch the whole world burn by virtue of engineering a blight to kill all the crops
1: yeah so so like just to clarify the actual problem that they're trying to solve is that there is some form of invasive species that's like microbial or something that apparently resists all attempts to eradicate it which is infecting all the plants and sucking all of the nitrogen out of the air or like something changing
4: the atmosphere the earth yeah. is going to become unlivable. And so they, we, we need to leave.
2: Right. I mean, now, I don't know, it, like of all the things to complain about this movie, like the ecological disaster that sets up, sets it up. I don't think is really one of them, but sure. It's like not well, super say well say explained. Because
1: the solution appears to be to set up a series of space stations that are around the general area of the earth. And these space stations have crops in them. Right. Right. I and know. I, I was thinking stations? that. Yeah. yeah I let's don't see how they solve the problem stations? at all? they put put them on the planet. Why do they have to put them in space? Like when are they afraid that the a different
4: fit in? kind of food or like <laughs> like take all the billions of dollars you spent to send like 12 man space missions to other galaxies and like fix the atmosphere.
1: Well yeah, yeah, it's like you that's part of it so like it, it accepts as a given that we that, are entirely that, that, that there's no solution actual, to this problem. Yeah, exactly. Right.
4: Uh, Here, I mean, here's the thing, like somebody once told me about screenwriting, somebody who knew a lot more about screenwriting than I did, that the less coincidences, the better, and that like you don't want people to to see the finger of the screenwriter on the scale, like forcing people to do the thing that you want them to do. you want it to seem like well, given that situation, of course, this is the only logical conclusion and like there's a lot of things in this movie that you just have to accept because that's the only way that that Matthew McConaughey gets to go and explore other planets and and you know like there's we can make a list of like a dozen things that like don't really make sense and and I think the main thing that bothered me about this movie is that it's, it was a movie, because of Christopher Nolan, because of the movie he's made, um, I really wanted it to be very rigorous and very logically consistent and to make complete sense. And I feel like this time he wasn't concerned with having it make... Complete logical sense. Well, so, uh, hold okay, on.
2: I'm not sure that You go, you go, you go, and <laughs> I'm not sure I'll, that's,
0: I mean, has that, do you really feel like that's been a hallmark of the cinema of Christopher Nolan thus far? Right, like Inception on a second or third viewing, it's kind of like when you say, when, you know, when Ellen Page says, you know, and then we ride the kicks all the way to the first inception, it's it's like it doesn't make any sense. It's it's complete, uh, it's complete claptrap to make the you know to make uh, Edith Piaf uh, longer and longer and longer. Um, right, I, I don't think of him as being a, a particularly rigorously plotted filmmaker. Well, yeah, I mean, you know,
4: first of all, M- Memento is perhaps the single greatest, most sort of like you know. I I don't even know how to describe it but like it's this type of like intellectual exercise of like a a, a movie that like when you figure it out you feel like you're you're smart for understanding it and I yeah. kind of feel that like the more I think about interstellar the sort of less there is to understand and so, you just have to accept it.
2: I think Memento is an exception to the the rule of of Christopher Nolan movies in terms of like everything really coming together and making sense. The rest of the movies span the spectrum from making enough sense to support the story and be interesting and then sort of uh, towards the other end of the spectrum being just like uh, a kind of a sloppy mishmash of idea of, of too many complicated ideas which ultimately don't come together in a story and as you said Matt reply re- rely cooks. too many <laughs> rely on too <laughs> many, many, many coincidences <laughs> okay so just for example but let's remember the dark Knight. right the first scene with the bank heist and then the school bus pulling out of the bank and then slipping into the other stream of school buses Right. Like we're supposed to accept a lot of things going on there. Right. That somehow that the other drivers of the school buses are in on the plot or don't notice that. Wait a minute. That school bus just pulled out of the bank. What is going on <laughs> here? I should talk to the cops. Right. And all sorts of other things going on with the Joker's incredibly complicated machinations. It's, anti, and how all it's, the-
0: it's Christopher Nolan's position anti-union labor. He really is like against the school bus driver's union.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> no, so all that is to say that like in Dark Knight, um, the plot, and, the, and the, the complicated plot makes enough sense, and then it, it hangs around um, the rest of the strengths in the movie in terms of the performances, and sort of the larger uh, ethos of it, uh, so that it all comes together and works.
3: And the more impractical and- the plan is when it succeeds, the more sort of dangerous the Joker becomes as a villain, right? Because if he can do these things that seem so implausible, and yet they work because he's just that smart, then he becomes like, a villain who can basically make anything happen, no matter how ridiculous it is, which is a tremendous threat. Right. I, think, I guess I maybe Messier Guy is just such a good pilot that. He...
4: Yeah. No, I think it was Pete who pointed out a long time ago that, like, for a for self described agent of chaos, he is a great project manager.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's got a Gantt chart, you know, this just yeah, really, like, it, the it, dependence setup is water falling from one space to the next.
0: It's also, I mean, right, think, yeah, yeah, it's also that, like, you know, uh, I think it was also Pete who pointed out that, you know, when, when uh, in, in the conditions of anarchy, right, uh, it takes a lot of collective action to make the pile of desks that the judge sits atop uh, in order <laughs> to, you know, in order to enforce the dictates of the kangaroo court. Right.
1: So I, I think to, to sort of step aside from how rigorous the Christopher Nolan movies are in general, I think that they reward investigation. They tend yep, to, right? Yep. You said to look right. at them again a couple times. Even Memento even has like a very notable place where it doesn't all line up. That's where the movie ends, right? When they acknowledge the part of the story that doesn't line up, which is that if he did suffer a head injury so severe that he's had anterograde amnesia to that very moment, there's no way that he would remember that the head injury had happened to him. Right, like that doesn't make cognitive science sense. That doesn't make neurological sense. So there's this sort of gap left open about like is what's happening really what's happening? But it still inv- invites uh, investigation, and it seems rigorous. It seems like, and I feel like I don't know. Can I talk about like the one? There were there were there's two, a couple things about this movie that got me more than anything else. But the one thing that got me more in this movie than anything else, can I can I just confide that in you guys? Because it, it really kind of got to me on a really deep level, like a really deep level, right? Like. So, like, let's imagine that you that you walk onto a spaceship. You're on a spaceship. There's a silent observer. They don't really know that you're there. And you see two big Hollywood star space commander people and a guy from the Hunger Games and a black guy. <laughs> there's a black guy. There's a black doctor on the spaceship. He's a scientist. He's got valuable skills that will happen mostly off screen for the entirety of the movie. <laughs> of what caliber of movie? Where is the bar of movie... Where you don't expect him to die in a really stupid way over the course Like like like, like oh, it's so oh, oh, oh. beneath it is so beneath any movie that would refer to itself as intellectually rigorous for you to put a random black guy on the spaceship and kill him. Well, no, like, in its defense, he didn't die first, the, the guy from the Hunger Games died first. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's that's how far we've come. I guess that's how far we've come as as storytellers. I that, guess... that we've right, I guess... Ray... a guy from the Hunger Games in front of the black guy on the like the needless death
0: scale. I guess the odds just weren't in his favor.
1: (laughs) Well, the point is that in the core, I felt like they were doing their best. Right, like in movies like The Core, where it's like, "Oh no, we haven't trained to the center of the Earth, and people are going to have to die <laughs> at random." You know, like we're doing, we're really hanging on by the seat of our pants here. We're not even sure we have enough film to finish this movie, right? Like, okay, this is what happens, and there's a bunch of stereotypical characters, and and you're kind of disappointed by the fact that the characters aren't more robust, and think the yeah. sort of things that happen to them are like not as surprising. But if you the- and I remember The Core very differently. I think
4: I think they're they're remarkably three dimensional. Well, we should do. <laughs> A, a core, core <laughs> podcast. We'll put core,
1: that aside. Corecast 2015, coming up to the theater near
4: you. No,
0: no, no. We've, we've already called our shot that we're going to do overviews of all of the Fast and the Furious movies before number seven comes out. Uh, so we can't, uh, you know, everything else comes after that. Fast and the Furious is our first priority, guys. And then we go to the center of the earth.
1: I just want to say this is a very serious movie about humanity's future in which the only black eye in the whole world is killed by a robot booby-trapped. Can, can somebody <laughs> explain to me why the robot is booby-trapped? <laughs> because there's no one on the planet but somebody might try to mess with the robot. I don't, no. So the reason that the robot is booby-trapped is, is that Matt Damon uh, has decided that he is going to uh, steal the spaceship of whoever comes to rescue him, right? Why and
4: is he going to do that? Because he does it, Because
3: he suddenly realizes that he's actually afraid to die. He thought he had volunteered to to die on the planet if it didn't work out, and it was and it, he was okay with that. But. I
4: guess. But like, I see. Like, once they come to rescue him, why does he then need to betray them and steal their spaceship? Matt, well, Matt, I've Matt. Seen, space uh, oh, Madness!
1: Yes, exactly! Far better it's a Space, space Madness. Than right. He has Steve Buscemi Space Magnus. Right, from, where he finds um, the
4: yeah. machine gun on the on the lander. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> um, he also has Steve Buscemi Con Air Madness, where he talks <laughs> to little girls next to an empty swimming pool desert. Um,
3: but, uh... But, I mean, he ostensibly, has, he booby-trapped the robot so that no one would find out that he was lying about the viability yeah. of the planet, He right? lives in
4: a one-room structure on an unlivable <laughs> planet. Don't do it! Do that
1: <laughs> I mean, they, he didn't want anybody to know that he was faking the data early. He wanted to reveal it to them in a dramatic fashion by taking one of their friends out into the wilderness and murdering them.
4: Here's a, here's a, like whenever I start nitpicking a movie like this, I think of uh, Indy on the Sub In Raiders of the Lost Ark. In and yeah. Indy, the, the scene where he gets onto the submarine and then somehow he stows away on the submarine. And we've, we we way way long ago I explored this on the podcast. But here's my point: nobody cares because Raiders of the Lost Ark is awesome. And even yes. though the, that plot hole is ridiculously large and, and in no way explained, um, you forgive it because you're into the story and, and you give them the rope to play with. And that, like, I feel like when you start picking little things like this, which is like, is booby trapping the robot really the smartest decision for, for, for that guy to have made? Then it's like what you're really responding to is that the characters don't touch you, the dialogue doesn't sure. touch you, yeah. and so you start like you start chipping away at the at the the artifice of it all. Well, let
0: me ask you a que- let me ask a question then: Is the the interlocutor who really didn't who really knows nothing about this movie? I, I didn't even know Matt Damon was in it. They, they sort of obfuscate that, yeah, in, the in the marketing, the, yeah. in the trailer. It's, and whatnot. It's, it's
1: a surprise. It's a really fun surprise. That Matt so da- that already... Matt Damon shows yeah. up. It's like, hi, I'm
0: Jason Bourne. I can run for half an hour flat out without uh, killing my without before my hands start to shake um well no, but that's
1: how they set him up they're like he was the best of us and he's gone <laughs> and then it's like we're gonna go to this distant planet and find the best scientist we've got and he's gonna help us out and it's matt damon holy crap i didn't <laughs> know he was in this movie and it's matt damon with space Madness.
0: <laughs> so, so let, they- me, let me ask you a question like if you had to uh if you had to express in a sentence what the intention of this movie was, like what the the impulse behind making Interstellar was, if it's not tight plotting, if it's not snappy dialogue, if it's not like a kind of logical internal consistency that the internet seems to value so much, right? What is the what is the artistic impulse that governs uh the kind of unfolding of this film?
4: I have a, I have a all right, hold on, Mark. Okay, let's you go take first. turns. Let's take turns. Uh, yeah, go, okay, Matt. go ahead, Matt. No, I was i was going to say, I think the key to this movie for me I was reading an interview with Jonathan Nolan uh, You know, the co-writer of the movie And he mentioned that the movie was not Originally, it didn't start out as his idea It didn't start out as Christopher Nolan's idea It started out as Steven Spielberg's idea Uh, Steven Spielberg had heard a lecture from a theoretical physicist about how wormholes would really work or black holes would really work And was curious about, like, could we write a movie about space exploration using wormholes And basically, it seems like he hired Jonathan Nolan to work on this concept, uh, you know, like, maybe, like, four or five years ago And then, like, you know, gradually decided not to do it, and Jonathan Nolan just took it and ran with it But if you guys, I mean, if any of you saw, like, for instance, AI you get the sort of like it's it's a bit of technology, but it's frosted with like a, 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 a very thick coating of like you know raw Haley Joe Osmond's emotion and love, and it's sort of like smothered to death in this like wet blanket of of um bottling. You know you know what I'm going for. This is it. Yeah. Reminded me very much. you Guys, read the Wrinkle in Time. Sure, of course. Yeah, I, I get the feeling Jonathan Nolan has too because he did these explanation with the piece of paper. Yeah. Um, but he also remembers the part at the end where, like, you have to you have to fight the thing, and then it turns out like love is the secret weapon, and as long as yeah. you have love, everything's going to be okay. Yeah, there were a lot of
3: comparisons to The Fifth Element being tossed around because of that sort of. I don't know what I, what I thought was a ho- at least the movie was trying to be a little harder sci-fi than The Fifth Element was. It it struck me that it was very much kind of pastiche of things from other science fiction movies in in the same way that The Fifth Element was, but. It didn't earn the goofy sentimentality at the end, I don't think, in the same way that, you know, a movie that basically could have had wizards in it did in The Fifth Element. It...
1: Alright, um, so uh, here, so I totally get you I totally think if Spielberg had made this movie The video messages from your child As they grew up would have been like a much bigger deal Because that's a totally Spielberg friendly idea Right? You get to like watch your kid grow up In video messages that they send you from outer space And you read see them in outer space Over the course of like a day uh, right? As opposed to the right? Michael
0: like, Bay idea Which is that when you blow up the asteroid You see just a uh, Just a kind of meaningless Random montage of like Girl on a swing Like uh, Sunset you know, beautiful <laughs> things. You know, all kinds of things going going together. To
1: <laughs> it's a series <laughs> so of awesome things on giant screens. I
2: miss so. you, babe, and I don't want to miss. It. Okay, sorry. Because there's so so too good. many cooks. <laughs> the number of cooks will never
0: do. Because there's too many cooks. So, okay, so
1: here's my, my take on what this movie is about. In like, I guess, in one sentence, is this movie is about? It's about men. It's about stubborn. Man, this is going to be one sentence. It's going to be one sentence built out gradually. It's about stubborn men who don't want to invite the opinions or feelings of others into their lives. (laughs) And it's about those stubborn men confronting the vast emptiness of the universe and somehow finding a way to self-actualize while still resisting any meaningful connection with other people. It's basically like uh, like, sort of like I am so smart and special and angry – That, like, I need to face the universe on my own, and none of the people who think that they can help me or none of the other things that I might be able to do that might make my life better are worth my time because I'm better than that, right? And it's about the story of one hugely arrogant man who thinks this about himself, although it doesn't condemn him for thinking about it, Um, literally, like, being kind of unwilling to really engage in a meaningful way with his own kids in real life, but, like, totally jazzed at the idea of, like, projecting messages to them through, like, the interior of a black hole, Right, that like, that seems uh, a little
4: harsh, Pete. Do you think I, I, was, he's know. completely unwilling to engage with his kids? And because the the whole first act of the movie is it's just him and his two children. By the way, Christopher Nolan cannot make a movie where the where the wife is not dead. Well, he there just, you go. He just can't. He just um, can't. No, but, but all right. But my my point is that like he seems to have a very close relationship with his kids, Does, or or do you find something lacking or insincere about it?
1: Uh, I mean, maybe it's the I get you're right, but I don't. I we don't are, feel like the movie we, is about it. The movie is about how it isn't enough, or how it isn't what he should be doing. Like he should be pioneering, right? He should be out there among the stars. He should be following his calling. We are also right? shown
3: John Lithgow sort of forcing him to parent a bunch of times. Right and and so yeah. like him him having been trained for this job that then nobody needs to do anymore and then this the the movie providing that sort of wish fulfillment even though it makes no sense in the world of the movie for that wish to ever be fulfilled
1: I mean, like, the thing that, that I struggle with the most about this movie, other than them setting up the random black eye character that they kill because they have no imaginations or, say, or have, like, apparently never paid attention to any other movies and realize that there are problems with them, um, is that, like, okay, so he goes through all of this, and this whole period for him lasts, like, a couple of months, right, like, of real time. He experiences a few months' worth of real time through the entire course of this movie. Cooper does, right? And he, like, travels the whole thing, and he comes back, and he sees his daughter again on her deathbed, and she tells him to go away because it's not right for him to see her die, right? It's all about him. First of all, none of it's about her. None of it's like, oh, you know, I have so many questions, or like, oh, I want to catch you up on my life. It's like, no, the best thing for you right now is to go have sex with Anne Hathaway on an alien planet. <laughs> right? And it's like, you should go to this woman that you don't even like, doesn't like you, sitting in the middle of nowhere next to, like, the grave of her fiancé, and instead of inviting her back to come to the space party that we're all having, she, you should just let her sit on that planet yeah. and raise embryos.
4: Yeah, wait, wait and, like, a second. Was there Anything in the entire movie to imply that there Was like any sexual chemistry between Those besides the fact that she's Anne Hathaway So obviously he wants her but like <gasps> Was there anything to apply that like if you Go to her they're gonna have like you know a I mean, I guess he would literally be the only man on the planet. Exactly!
1: (laughs) Like, that's what he gets at the end of the movie, his reward is to be on the only planet with a woman who doesn't like him, and she'll be forced to touch him, because she doesn't have anything else to do.
0: (laughs) The world was all (laughs) before them, where to choose their place of rest, and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through (laughs) Eden, took their solitary way.
1: Why does she even need to be on the other planet at this point? Like is well, is she, it She was going in search of her boyfriend. And he's dead, he's gone. Yeah, but <laughs> she didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> but like why is she at the planet at the end of the movie? Like she, uh, she is he supposed dude? Like, it's I guess it's possible that he's supposed to bring her back, but like like, for example, let's say, like, in the future, they made a Totally Sweet Green Lantern movie. Like, maybe Anne Hathaway would want to watch the Totally Sweet Green Lantern movie and not be alone on a desolate alien planet. Right. Like, why, why don't they just bring her home? But I thought the you plot know, like,
3: implication was that they couldn't actually go the other way through the wormholes, and it was only through the magic of the, like, hand-wavy, five-dimensional Matthew McConaughey from the future setting this all up ahead of time in the future that he got back.
1: I thought that they couldn't go back because they didn't have enough fuel. I guess maybe they couldn't go back. I guess that makes sense. It is entirely
3: unexplained how he ends (laughs) up back on Earth at the end, right? Like, he he says, oh, what happens next? Oh, well, of course, like, the... You know, a Deus Ex Machina that we didn't even bother describing happens right. next. Except you shake Anne Hathaway's hand as you're going backwards through the wormhole, which was a thing that we said we couldn't do. You know, they couldn't even send anything other than a single a single bit of binary information per year. I think is what they said. Like every year, they were able to either send a thumbs up or a thumbs down from each of the oh, planets. That's right. right. That's why
4: they had to go there and check it out.
3: Yeah, and and none of the, they all knew when when they sent everybody through the wormhole in the first place. They knew that they were all volunteering for this trip that they weren't going to be able to come back from but like it kind of doesn't make any sense that you couldn't just take twice as much fuel through it right i don't think any
4: of it makes it i mean here's the thing like if 80 years have elapsed over the course of his journey how come nobody else is isn't the whole point that like we need to go through this wormhole to one of these planets immediately or else the human race is going to be extinct how come nobody else has done it then i just i feel like it's a three-hour movie where neither plan a nor plan b makes any sense yeah. Okay, all right, okay, so let me
2: Marco. try to redeem this movie a little bit here, um, because we're all trying to answer this question about like what is this movie about, and it's clearly about a lot of things. It's, in fact, it is, a, it is about more things than it is not about things, um, but for me, one of the things that, it, 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 that most resonated for me and while I was most excited about this movie is that this movie is uh, very much a lamentation of the decline of the American space program. I guess you could say this, you know, the world, the humanity space ambitions writ large, and more specifically America's space program. This is a lament of the decline of the, that space program, which inspired an entire generation, right? Uh, and inspired uh, stories like Star Trek and Star Wars, like, you know, the 2001, this, you know, the wonderful science fiction of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, and, and beyond, right? It, it laments that decline, and it is a call to action for us to try to reclaim that ambition, the sense of uh, going far, far beyond ourselves and truly to that final frontier and beyond that. And it is, it is so permeating throughout the movie. And those are probably its most effective parts, right? The, um, the beautiful image of the spacecraft, uh, the the images of the spacecraft traveling through the wormhole and through time, um, even like the, uh, the image of the spaceship taking off from uh, Matthew McConaughey's spaceship taking off from earth is very reminiscent, very intentionally reminiscent of the Apollo, uh, moonshot, uh, 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 ph- uh, ph- ph- photography, right? Um, and and so in in that regard, it was partially successful, but ultimately, and I hate to bring us back down here, but ultimately undermined by uh, the the Deus the Ex Machina, the, the plot components, and in particular, the five dimensional tesseract at the end, which sets up the whole thing. Where well, in order for mankind to uh, to really enable this, this journey to the stars, we have to. Uh, somehow invent five dimensional time and space travel so we can send messages back to ourselves, which really, actually, really, really undermines this whole idea of like our ability to uh, explore and go beyond our limitations is intrinsic and from ourselves. Um, You know, not self
4: fulfilling prophecy.
2: I don't know if that's quite the right word I'm I'm looking for here, but it's not like through, through our own ingenuity, through our own science, we can do this. It's like we have to cheat. In some ways, you have to get this like special message through the watch in Morse code from the future because we can't figure it out with the stuff we have. On, uh, Can on we our see
1: Earth. the movie about the people in the future who build the tesseract within
4: yeah. the black hole? That, like,
2: that, I no, I, we, I can't can't we can't see it because we can't see we can't see in five dimensions, guys, <laughs> so we just not be able to appreciate <laughs> it. Because
4: right, there are two, there are two <coughs> things happening in the future, right? That Matthew McConaughey is sending back his message, but they, they don't even like try to hand wave at this. Is that like? Way, way in the future, somebody is building something inside a black hole so Matthew McConaughey can then send a message back. But whoever does that is making it as difficult as possible, including making the wormhole lead to 12 different worlds, many of which are death traps.
1: Right, and also just like huh. killing everybody except Matthew McConaughey and not having a problem with it. But really right. going to desperate, desperate lengths to save Matthew McConaughey's life because he's so special, so smart and geeky. And and geeky's people have special privileges in the universe. I mean, really, it turns Uh, out
3: his daughter is the chosen one, but we are shown on screen that she can't do it without him. And then we are told by her that she couldn't do it without him. Yeah, uh, yeah, in the last scene, I kind of want to see I kind of want to see the thousands of years that it would take for her to write down dots and dashes that that actually expressed any meaningful amount of data that she could (laughs) use to accomplish anything.
4: If you look at your watch and discover that the second hand isn't moving and is just sort of like wiggling in place, is there any possible way you'd be like, let's see if that's Morse code? Oh, that is
3: definitely (laughs) the ghost. That is definitely ghost Matthew McConaughey sending me scientific data in Morse code. But you I mean, guys don't even, get that on your even, watches? Yeah, even, I get, even before I saw this movie, like that was obviously what yeah, I would think was right. going on.
1: I've been okay. getting that sense of time to kill. I get that on my watch all the time. Because <laughs> even if you decoded <laughs> yes, the, the Morse code, code, and I hope they burn in hell.
4: It's just like, no, it's not like letters and, and words, right? It's like numbers. So even if you decoded the Morse code, it would still seem like Jeepers, right? You
3: My watch is saying, that's the best thing about high school girls. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, they keep getting older, and he stays the same
2: oh, age. Yeah, of course, oh, of course. Time dilation, <laughs> We're all of now. Anti-time, Jada. Anti-time. So, this also explains why Matthew McConaughey's hero is himself here Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, man, the temporal, the temporal McConaughey loop. Jeez, that blows my mind. That's awesome. I did want to build off what Mark said with a quick – because I mentioned this on Twitter, and I think it wa- bears mentioning, and I know we've been running – we might run a little long on this, and I apologize. Um, so this story of Interstellar is half of a story that works because it's half of a story that I've seen a bunch of times already, which is it's about this redheaded girl gets strange visitors in her room – Right. That she can't entirely explain that turn out to come from another dimension. And the person who goes out to investigate uh, why this is happening leaves for like a much longer period of time than anticipated and finds out that there's like reflexive paradoxical qualities to why this message is being transmitted to her. And she is then elevated once she grows up to being this sort of problem solver on a sort of galactic scale. Right. Um, and of course, this guy who goes adventuring, he has this companion with him who's this woman who doesn't particularly like him. And he's really arrogant about things. And she's constantly trying to solve problems with emotions. Basically what, and it ends with this like weird, like, you know, multi dimensional, inexplicable deus ex machina that also involves kind of like home decoration. Right. And, and other sort of old timey things like bound books and whatnot. I'm, of course, describing a Doctor Who episode. Right. I'm expecting describing a lot of the arc. Of the Matt Smith Doctor Who seasons, which is about Amy Pond, the girl who waited, who is this little redheaded girl, has a mysterious crack in her bedroom that is connected to some sort of broad interdimensional phenomenon that's very bad. And the, the doctor has to go on her behalf and kind of investigate what's happening and comes back to her over her life, but only at very, very long intervals. Right. And that's like the whole big story arc of like, and of, yes, of the pilot of a reboot of like a sort of semi, semi soft reboot of this show, but it's like a big part of the story. And the idea of having a story that starts with like a real life problem that becomes a sort of like vast existential experience of horror and then is solved through like a kooky old timey Deus Ex Machina is like very well trodden world and stuff in like the Doctor Who world. But the different, and, and I say that Interstellar is very, very successful at setting up the like the vast galactic interstellar existential horror aspect of confronting like the physics and the vastness and the dynamics of this whole thing. Happens Right like it is scary it is huge it is alien right like Matthew McConaughey confronting this you see like the person and you see the vastness of space and there is like real tension and and anguish the difference is with Doctor Who you get to the point where it doesn't make sense anymore and you also have like charm and wit and jokes and camp. Right, you have like all these aspects that soften everything around the horror so that you can consume the horror right, and appreciate the horror for what it is, but it also gets rounded out in an experience that's a little more bearable, a little more kind of like can, can come of a piece a bit more, and deals with like logical inconsistency in a little bit more of a consistent way. I mean, did anybody else see similarities between Interstellar and Doctor Who? I felt like there were tons of them um, throughout the movie.
2: I don't know if anyone else on this uh, podcast
0: watches Doctor Who. I
1: know Matt does, but he didn't watch Interstellar.
0: Uh, no, I, I, I didn't watch Interstellar. I also didn't watch the Matt Smith seasons. I've only watched the Peter Capaldi season of the 2005 reboot. Um, so, you know, but but uh, eventually Fiona will, will drag me through the David Tennant and, and Matt I mean, Smith seasons.
1: There's even the similarities in the Listen episode, right, where Peter Capaldi's Doctor becomes obsessed – ...with alien creatures that have evolved to avoid detection and goes to the end of existence in order to try to find them in the utter silence of things. And then it sort of becomes reflexive where they realize that it's his own fear that's creating these echoes through time that he's finding in his own anxieties... Right, and it's sort of like, oh, like we're creating this cycle for ourselves. I felt like that that episode of Doctor Who this season. I'm sorry if I spoiled it if you haven't seen that episode of television yet, but I feel like it's a smaller scope. An episode of television from months and months ago is of a smaller scope than like a big movie that just came out this weekend. Um, you know, it's it's a similar kind of story, and I felt like it was more it was it was better done because it better identified kind of like the personal stakes of confronting those sort of large unknowns. But it's just I don't know. It's like. This – this it felt like he was going for Kubrick and it ended somewhere – and it landed somewhere around Doctor Who, right? Because it just – <laughs> it got too kooky. It got too kooky. It got too weird. And it lost track of being unknowable and merely became absurd, right? Um, and in that sense, I think – and you could go through it. You can look at the relationship between Anna Hathaway's character and, and uh, Matthew McConaughey's character. I mean after I watched the movie, my first tweet was, all right, all right, all say which like two people thought was funny. Um, but, you know, Naruto – Naruto became Hokage this week So screw y'all um, <laughs> you know, I don't really care if you are interested In what I'm interested in But uh, I mean you know we do, we, do, we do what we love But anyway that was that was part of I think this movie Like this movie had so many little Similarities to Doctor Who Up into the idea of like there's weird agricultural Phenomenon on Earth This must necess- necessitate a space mission Right like and like um, Oh like the, the thing on the watch right Like the sort of like real inordinate power That's invested in kind of everyday objects That are tack- objects like tactile technologies you know statues and books like libraries are big things in Doctor Who um, all that stuff. So I don't know. I thought that it was so similar to Doctor Who, particularly with like the redheaded little girl who grows up, which is just such a weird parallel, that like I'm more comfortable if they watched Doctor Who and merely took the ideas because they thought they were cool than if they would actually say that they didn't see them and they just happened to arrive at a bunch of the same ideas just by coincidence. right Like that makes me a little uncomfortable. It's like you should have watched it. It's on TV now and it's about the same thing that you wrote your movie about. Right? like that's something that you should be paying attention. But anyway, um, that's that's enough about me and Doctor Who. There's a bunch of other stuff that we need to talk about. I mean, particularly the poem, the poem that gets talked. If <laughs> if any podcast talking about it, seller is going to talk about this poem, it needs to be us because we talk about poetry like this all the time, right? Like, what's what's somebody's take on on "Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night" and its role in this movie?
4: I mean, for me, it had a sort of unfortunate connotation because uh, did anyone see Back to School when they were a kid?
1: Oh, yeah, the Rodney Dangerfield movie.
4: Right, and, and Rodney Dangerfield, in this sort of a climactic moment, has to prove that he learned something in college, and he recites the entirety of the poem. Do <laughs> not go gentle that good night. <laughs> And then uh, to to the committee, so it's like a triumphant moment, like a flash dance, where she's like dancing, and the committee is like, "Whoa, she really knows how to dance." It's like Ronnie Dangerfield knows how to recite poetry. And then uh, somebody asks him, they're like, "Okay, what does that poem mean to you?" And he says, he says a chili pepper word that I can't say, but it says, "I don't, I don't, I don't take no stuff from nobody," which I guess is what Michael Keaton. I mean, (laughs) mean, really, the, the thing is like it's it's the most sort of like simple. It's 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 the most sort of like, you know, simple cliff notes version of like the sort of like, let's not give up. I don't know. It it, it seems sort of meaningless to me. Besides that, like anything Michael Caine says sounds cool.
1: I mean, do not go gentle into that good night was written by Dylan Thomas at his about his father's deathbed. Right. About his father who was dying right? And it says, and you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle in that good night. Rage, rage, because of the night. Dylan Thomas isn't saying that he wants his father to stay alive. He doesn't think that it's possible for his father to stay alive in this situation. He just does not want him to give up and resign himself to it, right? Which, which, which is I
4: I never, I never agreed with that poem. That poem is basically like there's no such thing as like slipping quietly, like you can't die peacefully, like, Dylan what's Thomas on? does not believe in it. No, yeah, he's,
0: he's really against dignity in that poem. Right? <laughs> right. He's...
4: I know, what it's like, what's what's wrong with, like, you know, if you're on your deathbed, you can just accept it?
1: Well, that's what makes it a poem. Like, well, i'm what makes it a poem, but Dylan <laughs> is Thomas is not exactly a happy dude. Well, he's not a happy dude, you know? And, like, he's writing this. Po- this that's what the, the poem isn't about, like, a universal statement about everybody and death. It's about Dylan Thomas's attitude about his father dying. Like, it's about a specific death, and it's about a specific thing that happened. And I wouldn't take life advice from Dylan Thomas about anything. Yeah. You see, like, I think a lot of Thomas people— of like, like Michael Kane. A up? lot of people sort of quoted, like,
4: a mantra, you know, that, that which I think is how Michael Caine is using it. He's not asking you to seriously consider the poem— He's just sort of being like Come on guys We can't give up We right. got it it belongs.
0: Yeah and that's why It belongs with The Road Not Taken As one of the most Seriously exactly. misunderstood Poems in English Right yeah. The Road Not Taken Is not about Doing the misunderstood Thing And how like Taking the the Less popular alternative Will like give you Character and You know spunkiness It's about how You're going to lie About the choices You made And that's how The story of your life Is constructed By your lies Right And do not Go gentle uh, at their. Uh, do not go gentle into that good night You know I don't have it in front of me But, but uh, it strikes me that, that There is a, a bit of it that's like Even though some people at the end uh, And this is the quote They know dark is right That is to say, you know that you should kind of, you should, you should slip out with, with equanimity and dignity and, uh, kind of a stiff upper lip, uh, about the hand that fate has dealt you. Even though that you know dark is right, you should rage, rage against, against the dying of the light. It's really counterproductive advice. It's a, it's a, it's not a self-help book so much as a self-harm book, right? (laughs)
1: Yeah. Which is the life of Dylan Thomas in a nutshell. It's like, it's a book of self-harm. I mean, I'm not, I'm not imputing his work. I'm just saying like, let's, this is not Oprah's book club kind of guy we're talking about here. This is like a very desperate sort of poet, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, his picture on this, like, on poets.org is of him, like, in pain, lighting a cigarette. (laughs) And I guess Michael,
3: Michael Caine, in the context of the film, like, understood that, or believed at least that it was hopeless, Right. And so, I mean, yeah, maybe a good point. that, like, it, I don't remember if he was the source of that or not. Was, was he the originator? Like, was he the reason that that poem kept creeping in?
1: Yeah, he kept saying it. And that yeah. that's part of why the role of the poem in the movie is kind of confusing, because it makes sense for him to like the poem, because it takes on a double meaning. People hear it, and they think that what Michael Caine is saying is that we need to man up and save humanity, right? And what Michael Caine is really saying is that, like, it's impossible to save humanity, but I'm going to, like, pretend to keep trying because the the alternative is intolerable. Right, um, but the way that it's repeated and the and the times that it's repeated, the movie never really seems to make a per- particularly serious psychological investigation of Michael Caine's hopelessness and like mm-hmm. his, his like his endeavor in continuing to try to like build the plan A out and convince people of the plan A. I mean, I guess you could just wrap it up with a bow and say, well, it's all a lie that he's doing to convince his daughter to get off the planet to have sex with Matthew McConaughey on an alien landscape, right? Like that's like his goal. <laughs> Is like, I met this nice boy for you. He used to be a spaceman. And like we're going to get you guys a nice place together. But is no no no.
4: Is is Michael Cade's whole plan to basically like have his daughter be like one of the four people from Earth that survives?
1: I mean, it's hard to ignore that one of the four people in his plan that survives is his daughter, especially given how much everyone else in the movie talks about like the preservation of your own child versus the preservation of the species as being an irreconcilable conflict. Right? Like, um, that it lowers Michael Kane closer to Matt Damon's level, right? Yeah,
4: exactly. That that is yeah, manipulating yeah. things. Yeah, that's uh, what is opposed to, supposed to, to be. acting selfishly. And at, you know, in perhaps a contrast to that, Matthew McConaughey at the sort of climactic moment, um, and so that you know somebody else can continue, cast himself into directly into a black hole, uh, yeah. somehow survives. But uh, we can assume that at that moment he has given up on his promise to his daughter. That that he has he's been like, you know what. I know I promised something, but I have to go into this black hole now because Anne Hathaway... Continuing is more important than me. So way, I mean, in a way, he defies the spirit of the poem. I just and, and like, maybe, I just like to,
0: to remind everyone of Bruce Willis at the end of Armageddon, right? Who says oh, yes. who says to Liv Tyler in the final communication that she sees on the bank of like thirty televisions all around her, if you thirty video screens. If you recall that that shot of them going blank and uh, displaying snow and her like collapsing on the desk in front of them, a very moving image from from with her microwave. palm
1: on the screen, right? Her fingers outstretched as if to Clutch Bruce Willis's <laughs> asteroid dead
0: face. Wow, that's that's a Darmok level. Uh, that's a Darmok <laughs> level uh, metaphor, right? Like Liv Tyler, her fingers outstretched <laughs> as if to clutch, as if to clutch Bruce Willis's asteroid crushed face. <laughs> the beast. It keeps going. <laughs> the beast. actinagra The beast on the asteroid. The asteroid blowing up. Um, the uh, the right. Remember what what Bruce Willis says to her, which is like, "I'm sorry, darling. I won't be able to keep that promise that I made to." <laughs> (laughs) sorry baby
3: i had to crash that honda
0: (laughs) into an asteroid
3: to save mankind
1: what it really is is it's an executive decision solution to an adam and eve problem (laughs) right where it's like you guys see an executive decision with kurt russell and steven seagal where it's like steven seagal is top billed as an elite special forces guy or navy seal who goes with kurt russell to reclaim kurt russell who's like a wonky policy guy or a computer guy who like goes to an airplane to reclaim it from terrorists and there's like very very early on in the movie the like the docking operation between the like navy seal plane or whatever and the and the plane has been hijacked is disrupted and like steven seagal throws kurt russell through the aperture and kurt russell looks down at steven seagal and says you're not gonna make it and steven seagal looks up and says but you will and then the two planes fly apart and little cgi or little computer composite uh, Steven Seagal, like, flies to his death ten minutes into the movie. And it's Kurt Russell alone for the rest of the movie. Wow. With John Leguizamo. But yeah, no, that's a really profound mo- movie moment that I is hope an, Is about. any
0: man really alone if he has John Leguizamo?
1: <laughs> well, John Wick sure wasn't, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but that's that's another podcast for another time. Um, but yeah, but like, yeah, I, th- I think that... Well, see, this is a pretty interesting part of the movie, which is like, you know, the, the pe- people's perception of saving their children versus saving their species, are these motives analogous to each other? Are, are they? How similar are they? How different are they? It seems like saving your children is more of a motivation than saving the species, but it also seems like you can't save the species without involving in some way the saving of your children just because that, that's what provides you with the motivation to keep going. Or right. this
4: this sort of the link, right? That that like it's the connection he has with his daughter. By the way, I noticed that when he shows up uh in mysteriously alive eighty years later, he asks immediately about his daughter. Nobody's like, Hey, how's Casey Affleck? <laughs> 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 That's kinda sad, isn't it? He
1: didn't get into college, right? So he's he kinda just, he just off. like
4: stops pretending that he cares about his other kid.
1: <laughs> when he grew that beard, he was dead to me. Uh, <laughs> he w- he didn't call me for twenty years. <laughs> I
4: mean, let, me, let me ask let me ask one question. Um here's the thing. When when he leaves Earth, Murph is very mad at him. But but I you know I thought at least part of that is Murph is like an adolescent girl and yeah. she's sort of selfish. She doesn't see the big picture. It surprised me somewhat that Murph continues to be mad at him. Not only when she's grown up, but she is actually working for NASA on the very project that he has <laughs> left. Like, how can you both be working for Michael Caine and be furious at Matthew McConaughey for working for Michael Caine?
1: Right. Well, the the point is that you can't have any motivations of your own, and your entire existence it must be like in the service of the existence of this man, dude, father, person right like uh which is i think it was his name in the movie right man dude father first it's also the
3: case <laughs> that nasa is the only employer that we are shown throughout the entire course of the movie so yeah. she might have just <laughs> she, she might have just forward. not had any other options in uh, town the new york
1: yankees survived the apocalypse thank you very much if you see the, but it, seems like,
3: it seems like they were they were kind of kicked down to amateur level i don't i don't know that there was really a, a they were probably not getting paid to play look
1: you know the world may be getting swallowed atom by atom by an endless and invasive species of food killing microbe but the yankees still suck all right they're still gonna be paying a-rod in the future (laughs) exactly a-rod's got job security i guess somebody was still
3: bottling beer too now that you think
1: about Uh, it so oh man i don't know uh I guess so. So here's the thing: is that like if you look at you look at Matthew McConaughey's character, Michael Caine's character, Matt Damon's character, there's this issue of self-preservation, and there's this issue of like so of, of preserving your own family or your own children, who you see as more important than yourself. But then if you look to the uh, the characters who are like most responsible for the ultimate outcome of what happens to the human race, just Anne Hathaway's character and uh, and J- Jessica Chastain's character. I guess Anne Hathaway is like still searching for her lost love. I mean, we would be remiss without talking about the awful mansplaining scene, right? Like, we have to acknowledge the mansplaining scene, don't we? I know we're we're over on time, but like, you know what I'm talking about, Pete, right?
0: Pete, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me let me explain the mansplaining scene to you because
1: <laughs> well, I respect your opinion as a as a human being and as a, as a man, who's capable of explaining things to me because I'm so emotional as a woman, <laughs> yeah. and capable of understanding things. Um, oh, no, you actually didn't see the movie, so you don't see the man's scene.
0: Uh, you know, Pete, I know all about this movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, as s- who's I've seen 10. movies before. I hope that as my, as, your, as my friend, you'd appreciate that I've experienced this firsthand, and you don't necessarily need to trump it. Pete, Pete, un- Pete,
0: I, you just don't. I mean, I don't <laughs> need to see this particular movie to tell you about movies in general. Come on now.
1: So, Matt, just to give bring you up to speed, there is a scene in this movie. So Anne Hathaway's job on the spaceship is to interpret the data that comes in from the scientists who have landed on the various planets and choose which planets are fit for human habitation. That's like her field of study. Maggie McConaughey flies a spaceship. The black guy gets killed by a robot for no reason. And Anne Hathaway finds uh, the planet. Right? Wait, well, what, is, it, what is the guy do. from The Hunger Games too? Um Oh, he, has, he I think he's the beard trimmer. I think that's nice. his job. No, what is he, he programmed no, the robot?
3: No, he um he's responsible for doing that docking maneuver exactly once uh, when they hook yes, when they right. hook the the ship that they get up there with to the colony ship.
1: The black guy's actual job is he's like a gravity scientist, right? And he like studies the black hole or something. That's what he actually does in the movie. Although there's no, indi- I don't think that's necessarily what his actual specialty is. But uh, but I think the Hunger Games guy programmed the robots too, right? Because he gave them all snarky senses of humor. That was his job, I think. Right. Well, then, I mean,
3: and then, the, the tradition of this movie is basically people explaining in one or two sentences what their jobs are to Matthew McConaughey, who then is better at their jobs than they are.
4: Yes. Yeah. So, is, he, is Matthew McConaughey actually in charge? Is he, like, the captain? Or is there no captain? Is there
1: no chain of
0: command? <laughs> <laughs> oh, captain, my captain. Another. <laughs> no,
1: Another. <laughs> no more Dylan Thomas. So, so the point is that Anne Hathaway has decided... That they that she wants to go to this particular planet, right? She's picked a planet. They have only enough fuel to go to one of the planets and still be able to get back. So she picks this one planet, and she's like, I, "I'm a scientist. This is my job. I've picked this planet." And like Matthew McConaughey and the Black Eye, the Hunger Games guy, has died needlessly at this point. Are like uh, are saying like, "Are you sure it's science that's convincing you to pick this planet, or is it your emotions, or is it like your because your ex boyfriend was on that planet?" Right? Or like your boyfriend, who is your ex if he's dead, I suppose. Right? It's like, are you sure that you're not just going to this planet to see your boyfriend – because that's why we think you make decisions is because of your boyfriend and even though i as matthew mcconaughey am a corn farmer and space pilot i'd have no experience with terraforming or anything i don't really believe and she gives like a perfectly reasonable explanation she's like yes my ex-boyfriend is on the planet and he's probably dead and i am drawn towards him first she gives a reasonable explanation which is like look The the planet that is farther from the black hole is more likely to be hospitable for life because the formation of life on planets involves the collision of comets and and meteorites with the planet to introduce unknown factors, disrupt things, um, and and that can't happen near a black hole because the black hole sucks in all space debris, right? So like the planet that's not in the black hole is more likely to be hospitable for life, right? And she turns out to be correct. But then she goes on this stupid freaking monologue that I can't believe she gave. It's, they gave it's her. the worst thing. <laughs> it's <the> worst <laughs> it's thing. really really bad. The it's the worst thing. It is like it I is it's so the, bad for Anne. It's, it's like she lost a bet. It's like her agent lost a bet. And it's like <laughs> you're gonna have to do something that gets you fired. And it's make Anne Hathaway say this monologue on screen. And it's just oh my god. And it's basically about like. Doesn't the power of love also count for something in outer space? I mean, isn't love does.
4: science in a way?
1: In a way, isn't love also science? Isn't it also science that love is the one thing that survives? It, it of, doesn't. Of, it
2: doesn't take money. It, it, it doesn't <laughs> take fame. <laughs> it, <laughs> you, it, you don't, don't need, need no credit, credit cards card to ride to this ride the space, space plane. <laughs>
4: plane. <laughs> <laughs> I just improved it. Actually, <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean that said uh, of all the things about that monologue, it does presage the. Dumb way that the movie ends.
1: She's right. That's the yeah, worst, that's the worst yeah. thing say, yeah, about she's it. Right is about that... she's, <laughs> she's right <laughs> about everything she says. She and They stole the still right planet. <laughs>
4: <laughs> she, a, she figures out love. Love actually saves. Love gets you out from inside a black hole. <laughs> wait, wait,
0: love. Love actually save this. Saves this movie. They all watch Love Actually, and the 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 film. The problems of the film are resolved.
1: Well, the thing is they think that God only knows what they'd be without you, but really it's us. It's us from the future that don't know what I'd be without you, right? And that conclusion they come to with no evidence, right? This idea of like, wait, this isn't some sort of alien species that's opened this fifth-dimensional portal. This must be humans from the far distant future. Why? Why? Why
4: is it worse than a Deus Ex Machina? Because in a Deus Ex Machina, you know who it is. That's in, it's in the title. <laughs> yeah, it is. This It's a screenwriter. It's a screenwriter Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm getting him out from inside this black hole because ending. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we're gonna get people mad at us because there's a lot of people who really love this movie, and I feel, I really feel like they need to. I don't know. I don't want to insult them personally. <laughs> really? Like are there
0: are there a lot of people who really love this movie?
1: Maybe not. Big Hero 6 beat it at the box office. Uh, I mean, when I went to the movie theater to see it, there was a huge line out the door to see a special screening of Theory of Everything uh, that was happening at the same time. So of the science movies, of the sort of, like, I love outer space and want to see a movie, that are out right now. Like, real outer space, not like Star Trek outer space, which has sexy aliens. Um, But, like... Theory of Everything seemed to be the one that was getting the buzz in in the Boston area. In
0: Cambridge, yeah, sure. In Cambridge, yeah. that's what they want to see. Sure, let's all go see Theory of Everything.
3: I do think, though. Th- I mean, this <sighs> while I would not say that this movie is is a good movie. I would say that it worked for me, on a lot of just sort of baseline entertainment levels. There is a lot yes. of... There it's is a, a well-made lot of, movie. There's a lot of cool yes. spectacle. There's a lot of neat-looking special effects. There is a lot of, like... And, I mean, I am, I am personally extremely charmed by Matthew McConaughey in general, but, like, there's a lot of really charming... Interactions between Matthew McConaughey and the robots, mostly. (laughs) Yes, Um, the robots are. Like when 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 the screenwriter allows Matthew McConaughey to react to interact with someone who is forced by the laws of nature to do whatever Matthew McConaughey says, uh, then they manage to make some pretty compelling scenes between them.
1: Yes, it's not that dissimilar from True Detective in that way,
0: right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: But no, the robots were really funny. They were really, and the robots were modeled after the monoliths from 2001 as sort of a a tip of the hat. Um, And the robots had like adjustable humor settings and truth settings to make it comfortable to live with them. Yeah, and
3: I feel like also a very a very uh, close uh, homage to Kevin Spacey and Moon too, right? The sort of like this is a robot, but it talks like a person, and therefore it's just another character.
1: I did not see that movie. Oh, you got to see it. It's great. Oh, great yeah. Movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Boy. A super cute robots. I really, for a second, I envisioned K pax right. as I thought with the movie I was thinking about.
0: about that as well.
1: <laughs> And I'm like, I don't want to comment on K Packs. <laughs>
0: but.
1: But if it's Moon The Sam Rockwell movie uh, <laughs> Yeah Alright okay, we'll,
0: we'll, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll leave the podcast there Before any of us Has to comment on On uh, So um, This has been a great uh, Episode of the Everything Game Podcast Thank you very much Jack Johnson for joining us On on the thing mm-hmm. Thanks to the Video Games Hot Dog crew And the Idle Thumbs crew For uh, lending us Their podcast recording studio Here in San Francisco <laughs> I'm really glad uh, <laughs> That Belinky Was able to join us That Mark Lee And Pete Fenzel Were able to join us uh, uh, if you like uh, what you hear, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes uh, or in whatever podcatcher you use. Outer space. <laughs>
1: Lady robot cooks in hours. I
0: I was trying to do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep a straight (laughs) face while uh, while doing it. Um, If you like uh, more overthinking it, if you'd like uh, that, you can get the Overthinking It newsletter. Sign up on the homepage of the website. Uh, You can subscribe to the Overthinking It Book Club podcast. Now considering Final Fantasy VI, and uh, you can wait in joyful hope for the coming of the Overthinking It Black Friday gift guide which is coming soon uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts until then visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably
1: doesn't, doesn't
2: do not kill gentle in that good night
0: I'm Michael Kane. You know what's great about high school girls? They get older and you stay the same age. Wait, I think I got that backwards. <laughs>
4: All right.